Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 27, and reading through into chapter 9, verse 12. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You're the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, When they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. I wonder, what are you anticipating in 2023? What are you anticipating? What hopes for the year maybe have crossed your mind? Uh, What activities do you feel, God willing, are definitely going to happen 
in 2023. Maybe there's some landmarks that you know about, significant landmarks in your life. Uh, maybe there's an, an, a kind of success uh, that you're hoping for uh, to be achieved. And, and you're working these things out as you maybe look ahead into 2023. Well, I have a question. Has the thought of suffering for Jesus' sake featured in your thinking? Suffering for Jesus' sake. I'm talking about persecution on whatever kind of level it might happen. Have you thought that you might encounter it this year as you seek to be faithful to Jesus Christ? Now, I know we've all got different situations in life. And some of us will be connecting with the world and with society more than others. But Jesus is clear. Those who follow him will experience suffering for his name. I think of all our brothers and sisters starting the year in the land of China, let's say. I, I, I don't think that any of them will have failed to think through what it means to be faithful to Jesus in different areas of their life. Because they're going to uh, confront that. I don't think we should um, fail to go through that process of thinking what it means to suffer for the name of Jesus when we seek to be faithful to him. So that's our aim uh, this evening. Um, the title is Suffering and Beholding. As we said, suffering for Jesus' name. And the beholding is beholding the glory of Jesus. And I hope we'll see that really if we're going to do one successfully, we need to be doing the other continually. And we see them together here in this passage, don't we? So in verse 34, Jesus introduces the fact that his disciples are going to have to suffer in different ways if they're going to follow him. And yet we also see that there's this provision of beholding in chapter 9, verse 2, where he takes his disciples up the mountain and they see his glory. And these two passages are connected We're meant to see them together. So in verse 38, Jesus talks about not being ashamed of him. In other words, being willing to suffer. And those that won't won't be ashamed of him, they will see his glory. So there's suffering and glory going together. And in verse 1 of chapter 9, he then promises that some of them standing there won't taste death. And I think tasting death there, Jesus is actually speaking about a death because of suffering, because of faithfulness. They won't taste death before they see his kingdom come. They see his glory. And, and, and then they do see his glory on that mountain. And each of the gospels places the transfiguration after that promise, really giving us a, a strong Indication that is the initial and uh, fulfillment of that promise. So, those that suffer for him, they Jesus is saying, uh, You need to see my glory, and I want you to see my glory that you might be willing to follow me and suffer in the right way. And so, our first point this evening is simply anticipate suffering. Anticipate suffering. Factor in how our faithfulness to Jesus may result in suffering and rejection 
and loss. And of course, this is no different than what Jesus himself did because our Messiah, our Christ, our Savior, he suffered for us. He said he must suffer, didn't he? Uh, in verse uh, 34, you know, uh, in verse, sorry, in verse, let me, find, let me find where he says he must suffer. Then he called the crowd. Yeah, verse 31. Verse 31. The Son of Man must suffer many things. And so uh, we see that our Messiah has to do this. And he wants his disciples to see this truth and understand it. And so he takes them away. Let's just take in the location of where Jesus was taking his disciples. Uh, back in verse 22, we, we found them in Bethesda, uh, Bethsaida, sorry, which is there, that red dot just at the top of, uh, of the Sea of Galilee. And then he's going north in verse 27. They're traveling north and they're going towards Caesarea Philippi, which is about 40 kilometers north of the Sea of Galilee, up towards Mount Hermon. So we see that Jesus is purposely taking his disciples away to share a staggering revelation with them. And so Jesus says to them in verse 27, who do people say that I am? He, he, he's, he's, he's taking them aside and now he's really leading them into what he wants them to see. Who do people say that I am? And Peter in verse 29, he comes back with that glorious answer, you are the Messiah. Of course, this is a turning point. It's a turning point in Jesus' ministry. It's a turning point in the gospel. Up to this moment, so much of Jesus' ministry has been about proving who he is. But from this moment on, much of Jesus' ministry will be about showing what it means for him to be the Messiah. Not just for himself, but for those who follow him. And this is so important that Jesus, he takes them aside to give them this moment of revelation. And what is this revelation? It's that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised King, God's anointed one, the one sent by God to save his people and rule in righteousness forever. What a revelation to be given. What an understanding for them to suddenly possess. And Matthew in his gospel tells us that this wasn't something they came to, but that it was God-given. And what does Jesus tell them to do with this revelation? He tells them to keep it to themselves. That's what he says in verse 30. Tell no one about him. Now, why does he do this? Well, that's because they first need to understand the implications of Jesus being the Messiah. So in verse 31, he began to teach them the implications of it. And he shows them that the Messiah won't be anything like what the disciples expect. And he won't be anything like uh, the people of Israel are expecting. He won't be a warrior king like David. He won't overthrow Rome and establish Israel as an all-dominant ruling power. He won't be like Solomon, extending Israel's borders to the north and the south and the east and the west. He won't cause all nations to come and bow down, not at this point. Instead, he will suffer many things, we're told in verse 31. 
And he will be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Those are the men who make up the the ruling council, the Sanhedrin. He'll be rejected by the nation's leaders and therefore by the nation themselves. And he will be killed. And then he will rise to life. And Jesus will remind the disciples many times what it is to be the Messiah. And they will continually fail to understand his plain teaching. Do you see in verse 32 that he says, he, we're told that he, he taught them plainly. Why do they fail to understand such plain teaching? Well, because they're blinded by their own definition of Messiah. They can't shift it from their minds. Jesus' definition just doesn't make sense to them. The only Messiah they understand is the one who will be a warrior Messiah. So imagine a a father says to his family, I'm going to be bringing home a new Range Rover this evening. And when he drives up the drive, he's in a Fiat 500. Nothing wrong with the Fiat 500, great car. But when he tries to convince his family that it's a Range Rover, they're not having it. In any way, and of course they're right not to have it, but there's a complete block. He, he can't convince them no matter what he says. Well, of course, Jesus is right in his definition of the Messiah, but their block is exactly like that Fiat 500. His disciples just won't get it. They don't accept it. And now we see why Jesus can't have them proclaiming he is the Messiah. Because they will only intensify the wrong expectation that exists among the people. So Jesus' disciples don't only need to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They need to understand what it means for him and what it means for them to be the Messiah. So what about you and me this evening? As we enter the new year, do we have a correct understanding of our Messiah? Or do our thoughts and hopes for 2023 reveal a Messiah of material ambition and human success? Is suffering for his name not even on our radar? It should be. Because that is what Jesus says happens to all who follow him. We discover a cross. We discover rejection. We find we must die to self in order to live. We discover we must suffer for his name's sake. And that's our next point really. Because his disciples will suffer. Now, there are many different ways in this passage here that Jesus affirms that those who follow him will suffer. But I just want to highlight one way that Jesus affirms that. And it's in what he says in verse 33. You'll remember he shared with them, the disciples, what it means for him to be the Messiah. And Peter in verse 32 rebukes him. He comes against that. He doesn't want that way. And then in verse 33, Jesus speaking to all of the disciples, he rebukes Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. So he's talking to Peter, but he uses the word Satan because really Peter is living out 
Satan's ambitions. Peter is speaking in the way that Satan would want. And Jesus has to rebuke him and say to him, listen, you're not speaking with the mind of God. You're speaking merely human concerns. But the point is, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me. Get behind me, Peter. Peter, don't try and lead me. I must lead you. I am your master. You are my disciple. This is a simple but vital reality of being a disciple. Jesus must lead and we must follow. That's what he goes on to say in verse 34. When he turns to the crowd, he says, to, uh, uh, you know, then he called the crowd to him uh, along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple. In the Greek, he is saying, if anyone would get behind me. It's the same words, the same language that he says to Peter. If anyone would get behind me, that's what you need to do. If you're going to follow me, you need to get behind me. You can't be setting the agenda in your life. I set the agenda. I'm the one that's leading the way. You must deny yourself. You, self must be decentralized. And you must take up your cross. So as we enter 2023, we are not to be out in front of Jesus. Even at times potentially seeking, uh, uh, seeking to avoid suffering. In a way, that's what Peter was doing. Peter was saying, don't go the way of suffering. I want to get in ahead of you, Jesus, and we'll go a different way. And we can be tempted to do that. We can, we can avoid suffering. Suffering that is legitimate for people who are being faithful to Jesus Christ. We are to be following Jesus, walking behind him. And as we go into the year, anticipating that our faithfulness will bring us into testing times of persecution. Not seeking it, but not avoiding it. And do notice uh, the challenge that Jesus gives in verse 34. Uh, To follow him is to the whole crowd. He calls all the crowd in at this point. He purposely calls them over. They need this challenge. You see, there is a difference between following in the crowd and truly being a disciple. There is a difference. And in a way, the gathered church is always a crowd in one way. The visible gathered church is always a crowd. It, a disciple is different. So have you really got behind Jesus? Is your life really demonstrating that you are a disciple? Following him. Now what is going to enable us to follow Jesus this year? Well it won't be turning over a new leaf. And it won't be depending on our personal determination more. But it will be seeing Jesus' glory. That's what will irresistibly draw you and me to follow him. Even through suffering. And so that's our second point. Behold Jesus. Behold him. Make that a habit this year. See the glory of Jesus and know that it is vital to following him. 
That's why these two revelations of Jesus are so tightly linked and set side by side. You know, after the transfiguration, we know, don't we, that Peter, he does doubt uh, Jesus. He even denies Jesus, even after this event. But after Jesus' resurrection and after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this revelation here on the mountain becomes a strengthening reality in Peter's life. And anyway, Jesus anticipates it working like that. Look at verse 9. He says, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. There will come a point, Peter, where this will, this, will, this will come to you in even greater power than it does today. When, I'm, when, I've, when I've risen, when the Spirit has been poured out on you, this, 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 this encounter with my glory will sustain you in a new way. And we see that in Peter's writing when he writes to Peter, if you can read that. We read for... We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. Do you see see the assurance that Peter starts with here? He has no doubt what he's following. And now he gives his reason. He, He could have given many different reasons. He could have given the reason of seeing Jesus risen from the dead. But he chooses to come back to this incident. And he says, I'm confident this, this encounter is working in my life right now to to cause me to follow closely. And so he says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from the heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And so he carries on. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to light shining in a dark place. And he goes on with great confidence in the scriptures. But what is he, say, what is he saying is giving him this assurance in a way? Well, he points to this encounter on the mountain. He says, I saw the glory of Jesus Christ. And it's giving me bold assurance. And you and I, this evening, in this aspect, we are just like Peter. As he's writing here, Peter's writing after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and after the giving of the Holy Spirit. And that puts you and me and him in the same category. And by the word of God that we have here this evening, by this word, which reveals Jesus Christ, And by the spirit that we have been given, God intends us to have encounters with the risen Christ that strengthen us for suffering and enduring. That's what he intends with the scriptures that he has given us. To have encounters and see his glory that we might follow him. So what was the glory that the disciples saw? What was the glory that the disciples saw? Well, we see it in chapter 9, verse 2 and 3. We're told there Jesus was transfigured. He was transformed before them. His clothes became dazzling white. 
whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. So this is, this is revelation. This is a pulling back of the curtain to reveal in some way the eternal honor and glory of the Son of God. Now, where did this happen? Well, I think the best guess, I think, is that it is Mount Hermon, which we saw on that map earlier. I don't know if it's there or not. There we go. You can see Mount Hermon right up there at the top. You'll remember the disciples had journeyed north to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was right in the foothills of uh, Mount Hermon. It was a beautiful location away from the clouds of Galilee. Different mountains have been suggested uh, for the transfiguration. But this one here seems to make the most sense. It's right in the area where Jesus just was. Mount Hermon is about 2,700 meters high at its highest point. And it's part of a mountain range that is 46 kilometers long and 16 kilometers wide. And the highest points of Mount Hermon, well, they have snow on them for about at least eight months of the year. And so verse 2 tells us in chapter 9 that Jesus led his three disciples up a high mountain. And Mount Hermon really fits the description well. And we can imagine, can't we, these, uh, these men scrambling up this mountain. Four of them wearing typical drab colored um, first century Palestinian clothing. Uh, marked and worn uh, by, by life on the road. And, and as they climb in this mountain, of course, they're going to be getting sweaty and they're going to get tired. And Jesus is going to be included in that reality as he climbs this mountain. And eventually they arrive at Jesus' chosen location. Most likely it is the daytime uh, when this event occurs. Uh, we see in verse 7 that it mentions the, the supernatural cloud that comes down. And that, that represents God's presence on the mountain. Uh, and and that, that was the symbol of God's presence in the Old Testament during the day. The symbol of God's presence during the night was the pillar of fire. Also, when this cloud disappears, the disciples are able to see Jesus. So we're almost certainly looking at an event that happens in the daytime. And yet, even though it's day, Luke's account of this tells us that the disciples went to sleep and Jesus began to pray. And while Jesus is praying, he is transfigured. The glory of the Son of God is displayed and he shines with a supernatural brightness. And Elijah and Moses, those great prophets of the Old Testament, they come and join Jesus in, 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 in a glorious fellowship together. And at some time during this period while they're talking, the disciples, Peter, James and John, they wake up and they see what's going on and we're told that they are terrified. Somehow they know who Moses and Elijah are and Peter in his fear, and typically rather than keeping silent, he speaks out and he says, you know, let's, let's build three tents. It's, it's great to be here. Let's build three tents, three tabernacles, one for you, Jesus, one for Moses, 
one for Elijah. And at this point, a cloud covers them and God speaks from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly the cloud is gone. We might even imagine the birds start singing again. Whatever the normal light of the day was returned. And the disciples blink in the normality of it all. And all they see is Jesus. He looks so ordinary. But he's not ordinary. Well, just four brief observations. And the first observation is this. It's very simple. Jesus is all we need. As we go into 2023 and beyond for the rest of your life, however long that might be, Jesus is all you need. We see that, don't we, so simply in verse 8, where when the cloud is gone, after the voice is spoken, identifying the Son of God, all they see is Jesus. It's, it's really quite dramatic in a divine way, isn't it? God has taken them up a mountain. The cloud has come down. The, he has spoken from the cloud. They have seen Elijah and Moses. And yet now, all they see is Jesus. Do you get the point? Jesus is the humble one. He's the suffering Messiah. He will be crucified. He will go to the cross in weakness and shame for sinners like me and you. But his glory is beyond compare. His power and majesty are infinite. And for all who take up their cross and follow him, he is all they need. His voice and his words, they will sustain you and me. Listen to him. Listen to him. This year, you know, in the Bible, to listen is to obey. Listen to him. He's all you need. Secondly, very similarly really, Jesus fulfills all God's promises. He fulfills them all. So again, we... we we, we know about this mountain, don't we, that Jesus takes them up. And we're aware that God's divine cloud comes down on this mountain and he speaks from the mountain. And it reminds us, doesn't it, of that mountain in the Old Testament, Mount Sinai, where God came down and spoke to the people as he gave them his law. And the people, they pleaded with God not to speak to them directly, but to speak through Moses. And God agreed. And Moses became the symbolic mediator of the covenant of God. And now, on this mountain, God's presence comes down again in a cloud. And God speaks once again from the cloud. And again, he identifies his mediator. The one to listen to, his son. So just like Elijah is an anticipation of John the Baptist, so Moses is an anticipation of Jesus, the only mediator between God and mankind. And of course, Jesus doesn't only fulfill this promise 
and this type. He fulfills every promise and every type of the Bible. He fulfills them all. All God's promises of yes and amen in Jesus. What a joy to follow him into the new year. Thirdly, Jesus has no rival. We've seen that underlined, haven't we, in verse 8, where he stands alone at the end and he's the only one the disciples see. But when we go back to verse 5, you might be forgiven for thinking he does have a rival. Peter, in his fear and fright, he says, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. Uh, you, you could almost get the feeling, is Peter thinking there's some form of equality going on here uh, at this time? That M Moses and Elijah are on a par with Jesus? And you get a sense that God is clearing that up once and for all. <laughs> because the cloud comes down and God speaks and he identifies who his son is, who his mediator is. There's none like Jesus. He is our transcendent God. He is totally other. His glory is unmatched. Oh, to behold him again and again and again. This is what we need if we are to follow him this year, even into suffering for his name. And so realizing this, Potentially just getting a sense of fresh of the uniqueness and glory of Jesus. Jesus calls us apart to gaze upon him, to see him. Did you notice that both the revelations Jesus gave his disciples that he is the Messiah and that he is the Son of God happen because Jesus draws his disciples away from the distractions of the world to be alone with him. He does it. He makes it happen. So in verse 27, he has them going on the road and on the way he speaks to them, just them. And he, he brings that glorious revelation and he teaches them more about himself. He takes them deeper into who he is. And then he takes Peter, James and John up that mountain. And we read in verse 2 that they were alone with him. It is in this place of being alone with Jesus that his disciples understand more deeply who he is. In this place, he teaches them deeper truths about himself. And in this place, he provides greater revelation of his glory and majesty. Do you remember? This, this is something Jesus does many times. Do you remember when he took his disciples out alone on the boat? He takes them out onto the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is just seemingly that ordinary man in the boat asleep. And that great storm comes up and he stands up and he commands the wind and the waves to be still. Peace, glory, revelation for those that are with him. And they say, 
Who is this? Who is this? What a response. They behold his glory in a new way. Dear brothers and sisters, nothing has changed. Jesus still calls us aside to be alone with him. To teach us deeper truths about himself and to cause us to see more of his glory. So that we might worship. So that we might worship him. I'm always staggered in this account here on the mountain that we don't find the disciples worshipping. What we do find them, in a way, is talking over who Elijah is. And, 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 and they're right, they're showing faith in doing that. But there's also something tragically askew. Jesus, he, he's the one that's just been revealed in glory. And, and, and they're, they're getting caught up with Elijah. Yeah, a, a good side issue, but it's not the main thing. This year going forward, Jesus is the main thing. Your theology must lead to him, not to debates. We understand with our mind that we might worship with our heart and behold him. So as a church, you're called apart by God every Sunday. You're called to come apart and behold the glory of Jesus. There are other things that go on in the life of the church. Home groups, prayer meetings, Bible studies, where you're being called to come apart and, and, and see Jesus Christ in his majesty and glory, to go deeper into him. And of course, as an individual, God is calling you, I say daily, daily, to seek that place where you behold his glory. A Bible time. By way of an illustration, you know, busy parents sometimes may say, maybe with a bit of guilt, I don't know, they might say, this Saturday I'm spending quality time with my son or my daughter. They imply that though they don't give a lot of time, this particular time will be special. But it rarely works out that way. Why? Well, listen to this quote. Quality time only happens when there is quantity time. Quality time only happens when there is quantity time. In other words, you can't schedule quality time. It just happens as you give time to your child. I think we can apply this to our times alone with God. Encounters of his glory and majesty can't be scheduled in. They happen at God's choosing when we develop the habit of a regular time with him. When there is quantity time, then we find that God in his grace gives us quality time also. Times when we suddenly see Jesus like never before and we wonder at his eternal glory and we say, who is this? Who is this? I will follow him. I see his beauty. I see his character. I can look at his work of grace. 
I see his glory. I will follow him all the days of my life. He will draw me on even when I suffer for his name. So I don't know where you are in your Bible times. God knows. God knows where each of you are in, in your Bible times, in seeking him. But I encourage you to make 2023 a day, a, a year of seeking Jesus Christ, seeking your God, coming apart and beholding his glory. We need that. We need to do that regularly. And God is faithful. Jesus loves to reveal himself to us as we seek him. Maybe um, you are, uh, maybe you're, you're, you're saying, I really need to establish that. And, and, I, and I haven't established it. Maybe you've never done it at all. Well, I've got a few copies of this. Uh, this is newness of life. This is for someone who just says, I really want to start a pattern. This will help you. They're not, they're not long. And the idea is that you just begin them. You begin it and you start the pattern. Go all the way through. If you do that, then you can go on to something which, again, is a, is a, is a, is a slightly, slightly meatier, but it's still just a, a short devotion. But you can, you can carry that one on next. And by God's grace, form a habit in your life that will bless you. Uh, these, I'll put a few out at the back. They are free to take the few that I have with me. So if you'd like to do that, only take them. If you commit even before you take them, that you will see them through. You will seek to develop a good habit. I've got one copy of this, which is for about 10 to 14-year-olds, which someone can take as well. Again, just to do the same thing, to create a habit in your life that you might behold Jesus. Finally, as we close... If you're going into 2023 without Jesus, you don't need to. I can't think of anything worse than to go into the new year without our glorious God leading the way. But it's a wonderful thing when we can say that Jesus goes before me. And he can go before You, if you don't know him, you can put your trust in him this evening. You can say, I need a savior. Listen, all of us know our hearts. We all know our own hearts. And we all know that we are sinners. We all know that we can't stand before a holy God. That's why he sent Jesus Christ. But Jesus has come. He has died and he has risen. And he has ascended. And he is the one that can take our whole sin upon himself and pay for it at the cross so that you can go into the new year with a wonderful burden lifted, sins forgiven and someone to lead you in that way, someone to behold and to see his beauty like you've never seen it before. So you don't have to leave this building tonight without dealing with that issue. There are people here, men and women that you know who can talk to you about that. Amen.